Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, the ABA Journal's Lee Rawls, and today I'm here with the editors of the new book, Infectious Disease Litigation, Science, Law, and Procedure, Davis Walsh and Samuel Terry. Hi, guys. Thanks so much for joining us. Good morning. Good morning. It's good to be here. Now, let's first meet you guys. Uh, Davis, I'll start off with you. Can you please talk a little bit about who you are, how you and Sam came to work together, and how this project got started? Absolutely. So I'm, my name is Davis Walsh, and I'm a partner at McGuire Woods. Sam and I came to work together because he hired me about eight years ago. I went to law school at William & Mary, and I was a clerk for a magistrate judge in Norfolk, uh, Judge Tommy Miller. Since being a lawyer, my focus has been really in a couple areas, uh, transportation, but lately in the life science area. And that's how this project came to be, as Sam and I spent more time focused on, uh, and frankly, infectious disease litigation. It became an area of interest and in, in an area that we thought a book would fit nicely in. And we'll, we'll talk more about it, but that was all before COVID-19. And when COVID-19 hit, it obviously changed the, the world, the legal landscape, and it changed our book a little bit. So Sam, that's fascinating. You were able to turn this around so quickly, partially because you'd already been working on it. How long of a project was this from conception to finish? I would estimate we probably spent two years all in. Davis and I had spent the past four or five years working on some infectious disease litigation emanating out of hospitals that had regional outbreaks of various bacteria. And what we realized w was that there was no guidebook for I, would, I wouldn't use the word unique necessarily, but very different kind of mass tort litigation. And we appreciated that there were probably mistakes we were making going around the typical defense way of defending a case. And we thought this would be a good place to update practitioners on both sides uh, to try to avoid some of those mistakes. And you mentioned that, you know, this also looks at defense, not just prosecution. So this is a book that is supposed to be useful for both plaintiffs and defendants' lawyers, correct? Well, we certainly hope so. I think the majority of the authors probably have actually a defense bent, but it was very deliberately and intentionally written as a just the facts, ma'am, or just the best practices, ma'am, so that it would be accessible and valuable to both sides. Now, I'd say that just as a human being navigating the world, I certainly have heard about infectious disease suits, but they more seem to be kind of one-off, you know, oh, Legionnaire's disease hits a hotel, something like that. Is that more what people are used to seeing in the courts versus what we may anticipate seeing when it comes to COVID-19 litigation? To some extent, I think that's right. You know, you the we talk about it in the book, um, particularly in the first two chapters that we had real scientists come in and write about, but Legionnaire's disease is a great example you had a localized outbreak at the American Legion Convention. And so your universe of potential plaintiffs is, is limited to people who were at the Legionnaires, uh, excuse me, the, the American Legion Convention. Uh, over time, that's changed a little bit. I remember reading a few years ago about an outbreak that happened at an airport, and it was traced back to a water fountain. In that case, you, you, know, you, you start seeing the potential for there being a more widespread potential lawsuits that would be out there. The number of people going through airports, you know, it may not be as localized or as focused as it had been. So it, it's, a, it's a changing and evolving, I think, area of the law 
where a big part of it is the change in the science. You know, it's, it's kind of weird to think about, but 30 years ago, you know, in the O.J. Simpson trial, there was a, a big part of that trial had to do with questioning DNA evidence. And now today, we, we, everybody, it's a, it's a household term almost, DNA. And now you have scientists who can do DNA tracking on bacteria. We hear about the different variants of COVID viruses that are out there, but it's the science is now so evolved. It is now even easier to track who might be involved, which also creates a broader base of potential claims. And you mentioned that the first two chapters focus on the science. Um, I don't usually do this, but I'm going to go ahead and read the chapter titles for our listeners just so that they can get an idea of the scope of this book. We go from chapter one, Microbiology Basics, to Epidemiology Basics, Products Liability, Premises Liability, Food Outbreaks, Employment Disputes, Quarantines and Other Government Restrictions, Force Majeure and Possibility and Frustration of Purpose, Insurance Coverage and Disputes, Discovery Planning, HIPAA Compliance and Discovery, Jurisdiction and Venue, Multi-District Litigation, Class Actions, Punitive Damages, and Jury Trials. So this is pretty holistic, and it took a lot of authors to contribute to writing this book. Could you talk about how you brought together the team that ended up writing the various chapters and providing the expertise? Yeah, initially, beyond the the mass tort and basics of tort litigation, Davis and I already had the benefit of good contacts with people who have a high level of expertise in a number of topics just by working at a large law firm. So we were pretty quickly able to gather subject matter experts that we knew would make good contributions. And then, thankfully, once we got the book concept accepted and started working with the ABA, we were introduced to new subject matter experts in subjects we had not even initially considered being a part of the book. People like uh, Jeff Teeters and Professor LaFasso, and they, not surprisingly, brought a real, a real richness and depth and variety of, of perspectives that uh, we wouldn't have otherwise had. And I'd like to get back to something that Davis mentioned, which was the changing science and how, you know, like the O.J. Simpson trial introduced many people to this idea of DNA evidence. The local news is introducing many of us to the concepts of epidemiology. And I was particularly interested in the very last chapter, jury trials. Now, this is going to have to call for some speculation, but do you anticipate infectious disease litigation becoming perhaps easier because more people have just been exposed to some of these ideas about infection and infection control? It's a great question. It's really the question of the day. And I think you could make arguments that we might see more trials or more litigation after COVID. I think there are also some arguments that maybe we'll see less of it. At a basic level, litigation is failed dispute resolution. People were not able to negotiate or talk through a dispute, and so they hire lawyers and they sue each other, people or organizations. It sounds trite to say this in 2021, but outbreaks like COVID are disruptive events. And prior to COVID, we had maybe not a global pandemic like this in the last hundred years, but we had a lot of epidemics and a lot of local outbreaks that disrupted people's lives. The bigger the outbreak, the more people are infected or hurt the more ripple effects and and the more 
disruptions and the more potential for litigation. In terms of whether it will be easierly, I worry about an overconfidence of evidence. So we explain in the book the advances in technology that arm lawyers and litigants with better information about how or why an outbreak or an infection happened. And psychologists probably have a, a more precise term for it. I'll, I'll just call it overconfidence of evidence. And, and maybe we could talk through some examples later. But the real concern is that lawyers who really are not equipped to understand the limitations of PCR technology or the limitations of even a well-done epidemiology study to ever be conclusive about causation might misinform courts, might misinform judges, and, and we could actually have bad outcomes, if not miscarriages of justice. So let's say I am a medium-sized town tort lawyer, and maybe I have only been involved in cases before that had perhaps like a food law angle, or maybe there was a food poisoning case. But now clients are coming to me saying, I believe I was infected in the workplace because there were unsafe conditions. That isn't something that I, as a tort lawyer, have, have dealt with before. Where should attorneys start when it comes to even considering whether they take these cases or once you've taken a case like this, how should you be educating yourself from the start? I think the example that you use in the book is a great example because the area of food safety is one that has been um, evolving and evolving rapidly. Uh, we have a, a chapter in the book about it. But you you talk about there in that area you have a you have a, a registry you have contract tracing these things that we've heard about with COVID food professionals have been doing for for a decade so if you've had that experience you have a lot of kind of your basic building blocks the challenge though is the legal differences and this is you know and, and hopefully if you know the book will provide at least a starting point for people who are interested in this. But there are there are important legal differences, you know, in terms of workers' comp and employment law versus food safety law. But I, I would say to anybody who's going to be in looking at those types of cases that the most important thing is to be creative in a sense, because what this type of litigation has taught Sam and I is that you can't always do things the way you you used to do them. You know, I've heard just you know through the grapevine people saying, well, COVID nineteen is not going to affect workers' comp. I'm not a workers' comp lawyer, but I don't know if that's true or not. You know, there's a lot of important questions you have to ask, and you have to ask them anew. And so I think for anybody interested in, in getting into this law, or if you're, you know, a mid-sized town practitioner who is looking at whether or not they can handle one of these cases, the first thing is you, you need to look at it totally new because the science and the law, they merge together nicely, but you can't think that you're going to do it like a, a, a similar case. That's some good advice. So, Sam, when you were looking at the book, what did you want to focus on contributing when it came to writing? The most difficult part in writing a user guide is trying to make it accessible for different viewpoints. As a, as a primarily defense-focused lawyer, there were times I probably had to throttle back on that perspective and remember that uh, if, it wanted, if I wanted to make it not only accessible, but, but useful to lawyers who would be representing injured people that I needed more balance. And I was also aware that uh, law students might benefit from 
a seminar on a topic like this and talking to Dean Perdue, who was kind enough to write one of the reviews for us. She mentioned that the book and the disparate chapters actually provide a pretty good holistic training for a law student on a lot of topics that otherwise they take once a semester. So if you understand the chapters of this book, and we wrote it intentionally this way, you're going to get some basics in jurisdiction, in venue, in class actions, in tort law, in employment law, in contract law, in constitutional law. And it's a good case study, and it's one that's live and and being lived as we speak. So you mentioned younger lawyers, and I'd love to get into that. Let's say, having gone to law school during this tumultuous time, you've decided, you know, maybe infectious disease litigation is the career I want to start out in. If you're still in school or you've recently graduated and you are looking to get into this area, are there any tips you would have for young attorneys or law students who really want to make this part of their career? So I, I think the first sentence of our introduction hits on, on the exact point I would make, which is lawyers must learn to think more like scientists. You know, law school teaches a lot of great things about the law, it teaches you how to think like a lawyer, get you ready to go in. If you want to work in this area, there's an element of, of creativity, of learning more about the science, of learning how scientists think about things. And so starting early would be the best advice I could give is to, for lawyers to start thinking like scientists. And you mentioned your introduction. I love to have authors read a passage from their book just so that people can get a feel for the language. Now, it's a little more difficult when more than 30 authors are involved in producing a book. But could you read a portion from the introduction for our readers? Sure. So I'm going to read a little bit from the introduction. I think lays out nicely where the book's coming from. Obviously, COVID-19 is an overwhelming factor in our society today. But, you know, when, when COVID-19 moves on and we're able to move on, this, this litigation is still going to be, uh, in our view, of the utmost importance. And so this, this um, section, I think, identifies why this could be so important for such a long time. This book began several months before the COVID-19 pandemic profoundly altered human life and business around the world. Growing international travel, lax hygiene, and personal connectivity had already accelerated the pace of communicable disease. According to research sponsored by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, as many as 11 million people worldwide died of sepsis, a condition caused by the body's reaction to an infection in 2017. Modern technology offers new tools to better understand, track, and explain viral and bacterial spread in humans. Localized outbreaks and regional epidemics had already previewed the evolving challenges and opportunities in infectious disease litigation. 21st century scientific advances provided the evidence and basis for lawsuits in 2019 that would not have been viable even 20 years before. In 2020, as COVID-19 overwhelmed governments and significant segments of the population, and paralyzed many courts, we became painfully aware of the magnitude of risk carried around in tiny bacteria and viruses. Thank you so much for reading that passage. I would like to talk about jurisdiction for a while, because this isn't something that I had super considered before reading a portion of this book that talks about 
an outbreak litigation hypothetical, which is how you would decide jurisdiction and venue when it came to a coronavirus outbreak on an airplane in flight. And I was like, oh, gosh, yeah, would it be, you know, where did we take off from? Where did we land? But also, I think living through the pandemic has made us suddenly aware the various ways we come into contact with people in our daily lives and the avenues for infection beyond coronavirus. You know, we, we mentioned food litigation. Okay, well, do you have it in the place where the person got an E. coli infection? Do you have it where you harvested whatever food it was that caused this E. coli outbreak? For infectious disease, you know, you mentioned that science can tell us more about where a strain came from, but not necessarily definitively where someone was infected or the routes. It just seems so complicated to me. How would you recommend people start when it comes to jurisdiction and venue and even considering how to decide that for litigation? So before, this is Sam, before I punt that to Davis, who's a better jurisdictional expert, I think the the key point, Lee, is that there is simply not always one court that can resolve a conflict that touches so many lives. Sometimes there's not one place of jurisdiction. There may, there may be many courts. The other point I would make is that the concept of personal jurisdiction, even before the COVID outbreak, was undergoing a review at the Supreme Court level and down at uh, the district court level so that basic assumptions that I think most practicing litigators made about where they could bring and defend cases were already being reexamined. I think Sam's 100% right. We're in a, you know, putting my my fully lawyer hat on here, we're in a time where where cases can be brought has evolved and changed a lot over the past decade. And I think infectious disease litigation is going to heighten that. It's a multidimensional kind of analysis because we're not only in the infectious disease circumstance talking about the place that a, a lawsuit could be brought. We're also talking about sort of whether multiple lawsuits can be brought in one place. And we have a chapter in the book that talks about multi-district litigation and class actions. And so what, what a practitioner walking in into this circumstance trying to figure out, you know, where could a lawsuit be brought or where may I have to defend a lawsuit? The first step is, is, is sort of gumshoe work. It's, it's kind of the old school. You think about it like Perry Mason, you're trying to turn over some rocks. You got to start getting into the, the idea of where did things happen? Where, you know, if I'm a food producer, where was the food grown? Where was it transported? Do I have some idea where the, you know, where the, the potential issue arose, where the contamination arose? How many states did it go to? Where am I located if I'm the defendant? Am I, you know, am I, a, I'm, Sam and I are both in Virginia. Am I a Virginia company? That means I can be sued in Virginia. There's a lot of questions that come out, out of it. And even in this litigation from the first step, you know, figuring out where somebody can be sued, you immediately start having to apply these scientific principles and starting to develop those facts so that you can understand that. And it's not just for the plaintiff's attorney trying to figure out where they can file suit. It can be for the business leader trying to figure out where can I be sued? You know, if I'm a distribute a food distributor and I just distribute in three states, you know, on the East Coast, could I be sued in California? There's a lot that goes into that. 
And it's, you have to take that legal framework that has been changing over the past decade plus, but you also have to marry it up with the science framework. And that really gets important from even before the lawsuit starts. And what makes this type of litigation, I think, a little bit different than other litigation. I want to change tax a little bit because you mentioned that there are currently cases pending, maybe before the Supreme Court or state Supreme Courts, about issues involving infectious disease litigation. And a big one that I've seen in the news, because the U.S. Supreme Court has stepped in, has been quarantines and other governmental restrictions. Had you planned before COVID-19 to make this as big a part of the book? Was this more something that developed as we saw restrictions and quarantines being issued in ways that we had not had to have, possibly since the 1918 flu? The latter. That was absolutely an add-on. When Davis and I began work on the book pre-COVID, there really had not been any newsworthy quarantining in quite a while. Once we got into the summer of 2020, whether we want to call it formal quarantining of travelers or not, that's what was taking place. And then additionally, you had a patchwork all across the country of governors and even mayors enacting stay-at-home orders, sometimes under the guise of just being recommendations, other times behind the full police power of the state. So that was absolutely an example, Lee, of our realizing halfway into the book that we needed to add something for practical use. Another legal concept that I first would like someone to um, define for me, and then if you could talk a little bit about what this means in terms of infectious disease litigation, and I think particularly COVID, because I started hearing about it in in news coverage, and we've written a bit about it in uh, the ABA Journal, but the idea of force majeure and acts of God and what you may be covered for when it comes to insurance companies. This has been talked about, but I don't know necessarily that all my listeners will understand what the debate is. Could one of you talk a little bit about force majeure? Uh, Sure. So you've already hit on one of the key things that I learned going through this is the force majeure and the insurance discussion that we have in the book was very much a product of COVID occurring. And it was one of those things that we added as we went forward. And it was an area that was very important to not just practitioners, but to business owners. I was talking to a contractor who told me, you know, he was like, as soon as COVID came along, all of a sudden I had to look at my, you know, my contracts with my customers and figure out what force majeure meant. You know, what happens if the governor of of my state tells me that I can't have a crew on site? And so it became very prevalent very quickly. But I also learned that how force majeure works in the insurance context and in the contract contracts context can be very different. And therefore, we have you know, two separate chapters about it. The idea of force majeure is that something may not be possible because of, an, of the quote-unquote act of God. Being lawyers, what an act of God is can be open to a lot of different interpretation and has a lot of litigation behind it that has, has existed for decades and decades. And now we're trying to use that precedent to figure out what it means in the pandemic context. I wouldn't say this is any sort of bright line rule, but it, an important thing to remember in this area is the difference between a pandemic and an epidemic. We started this book from talking about really about a lot about ep- epidemics. Sam mentioned that we had done work in, in outbreaks that occurred in a hospital. You've heard about outbreaks that occurred in a, in a hotel. 
how those play out in terms of what an act of God is can be very different than a pandemic where you have whole industries that are having to shut down and what that means in terms of a contract. And, and I'm sure I could spend, well, a lot of lawyers could spend hours talking about how it's working in this pandemic, but but it's going back to the idea that that we have a whole new rubric we're working with now because we are facing this COVID pandemic and looking at the laws, how it's how it's come about when you're talking about more localized issues, it's a whole new ballgame in a lot of ways with having this global pandemic. And when it comes to localized issues in a global pandemic, I'm speaking to you all from Chicago. And one thing that the city is really bound up in right now is the arguments going on between the Chicago Public School District and the mayor and the Chicago Teachers Union about when it will be safe to have in-person school again. You know, certainly that's something that's being dealt with across the country. There just are certain aspects, for instance, you know, union contracts, et cetera, that are, you know, more specialized and localized. But I have to say, when I'm speaking to the people in my life, friends, family, a lot of what we are talking about when it comes to disputes that we aren't finding a way to resolve, they're, they're employment disputes. And I would love for you to talk a little bit about, I know neither of you wrote this chapter, but talk a little bit about employment disputes and infectious disease litigation. It's, it's something that is on a lot of people's minds, I think, when it comes to, well, okay, am I an essential worker? If I'm an essential worker, can I have the vaccine faster? Oh, wait, no, then I'm not considered an essential worker. Suddenly I'm you know, not entitled to certain protections. I, I just think it's on a lot of people's minds. Right. It's a great example of, again, how disputes arise when there are disruptions, and in this case, when there are changes in expectations. So what we see playing out in Chicago and elsewhere across the country with regard to disputes, deeply felt emotional disputes between people trying to get schools back open in a safe way. Think about how different that is because of our knowledge and our expectations. Yes, COVID has a significantly higher infection and death rate than normal flu, but you, you would never have had this level of friction and of dispute in a fall anywhere in the country during a normal flu season, even though the flu and, and other viruses circulate in the fall in schools and people get sick and, and, and people die. We're acutely aware of that now, and I don't think any experts believe that we are going to, as a culture or society, just reset and go back to 2018. So in the workplace or in public dining or public spaces, the reality going forward is that we all now have higher expectations of ourselves and of others. And we have heightened awareness of the risks that we've all been living with and never thinking about until COVID brought it to the front of our minds. Certainly, it now seems a little bonkers to me that I used to go to work with a slight cold and just try and, you know, close my door when I could. It didn't occur to me to, to do more than I probably would have, you know, washed my hands more or used hand sanitizer. But mask wearing, that wasn't anything I would have considered. And, and now it seems hard to imagine going back to a time where I would have walked around with a cough 
it used to be a badge of honor to to come to work when you weren't feeling well. You were a tough employee. I think we're 180 degrees from that now. And the new norm, my expectation would be that the new norm in the workplace is that employers now want you to stay home. Well, Davis, Sam, if you had one message to give to someone who has tuned in for this episode, not necessarily because they currently have a case involving an infectious disease dispute, but just because they you know, have an interest in the topic, what should people know about this kind of litigation, even if they're not personally participating in it? I think, you know, the overall, before COVID and it continued through COVID, the overall theme of the book is that everybody has seen science evolve in this area over the past 30 years. We talked about DNA testing. What's also going on is the law has been evolving. Maybe not exactly hand in hand, but it's a changing area. And frankly, it's one that's one of the reasons it's an exciting area is that as the science has evolved, so is the law. And it's not this is not a situation where we're in a stagnant field and, and getting those opportunities to do something a little different every day is a lot of fun. And I guess I would hope that practitioners and, and judges and, and potential future litigants retain some humility about how much we still don't know. I, I alluded earlier to the overconfidence of, of better evidence. Just because in 2021 and, and going forward, we might be equipped with an epidemiological study conducted by great scientists at a local health department showing with near 100% confidence that an outbreak was attributable to a food source in a retirement home just for instance. And even though we might have new PCR microbiology that tells us in addition to that probability, we, we have actually been able to fingerprint the DNA of the bacteria or the virus to that source. I hope that lawyers and litigants and judges will retain the humility of, of understanding that that still doesn't exclude other contributing factors, and it still doesn't tell us how the food in that example came to be infected. Was it because of a bad shipment of an ingredient? Was it because of some condition in the kitchen at the retirement home? Was it because, again, maybe a family member of a resident wanted to help prepare food and they were already infected and they infected the food? There are, there are countless things that we're never going to know because we don't have perfect knowledge. And, and I just hope that as we are all equipped, thankfully, with more precision and better evidence and better science, that we keep in mind that there's always a lot we don't know. It's very easy as I sit here in my house where I've been since last March, essentially, to be fully consumed with COVID as the main concern for infectious disease entirely. But certainly, you know, you mentioned the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation stats on sepsis. There's the issue of antibiotic resistance or, or MRSA. There are so many other things that we may not be thinking about right now because we are wrapped up in COVID. And I would love for you to talk a little bit about what we may be overlooking because of our focus right now on COVID-19. Sam, could you start us off? One immediate concern a number of doctors have expressed to me is that for good reason, 
there have been fewer diagnostic procedures, fewer scanning procedures, fewer medical procedures overall throughout the course of this pandemic, which is going to extend for more than a year now. And doctors and medical providers have done the best they can, but the the fact remains that a number of patients who have needed procedures have not gotten them, and a number of patients who have maybe needed diagnostic tests to find out if they have cancer for instance, have either voluntarily not come in for those or haven't been able to get those. And so the concern expressed from physicians I've heard is that once we beat the pandemic, that we may see, unfortunately, an uptick in cancers and a number of bad health outcomes that could have a significant effect on public health. And while their primary concern is about their patients, I think to the topic of this book, they're there's a secondary concern about blame and of, of finding fault from whatever direction. Just to add to that, I think one area that uh, in a similar way that the pandemic has changed our lives so dramatically that we all have to be somewhat cognizant is, is, is in our workplace. You know, you think about before the pandemic, there were more, you know, there may be more trainings, there may be more instruction, there, there may just be a different way of doing your job altogether. And after the pandemic, how we merge our, you know, people who are still working from home, people who are going to be in the office, it's an aspect that I think we just all have to be cognizant of, of how we're, you know, how that transition back is going to happen, how that's going to affect our businesses, how it's going to affect our, our, our lives. And, you know, again, we, in the book talk about, you know, their, their, you know, litigation a lot of times has to do with blame finding and, you know, it's just a new reality that we're going to be considering. And if someone was interested in picking up the book, Infectious Disease Litigation, Science, Law, and Procedure, where could they go? It is available on the ABA website, and the easiest place to look is to search um, right there on the ABA website. And we will have a link to the book on abajournal.com. Well, Sam Davis, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of the Modern Law Library, and thank you to my listeners. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe in your favorite podcast listening service. And if you've read a book recently that you'd like me to feature or just take a look at, the address to reach me is books at abajournal.com.